Well, let me just start by saying how proud I am of all of you guys coming back for this final session. <laughs> Usually, the last speaker is dreading that moment that we show up and we're thinking, oh no, where is everybody? It's post-lunch, and it's a beautiful day outside, and yet you guys have opted to be in here to open the Bible, to be with each other, and to learn more about Jesus, so well done. So let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 24, so book number three in the New Testament, Luke chapter 24, and you guys have been sitting long enough, so stand up again. (laughs) For our scripture reading, I'm just going to read one verse, and then I'll have you guys sit down again. But Luke chapter 24, and uh, this is a familiar passage for most of us, if not all of us. I love this verse. But Luke 24, verse 32. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us? That makes us a great post-lunch verse, right? Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So, Father, again, we just want to devote and dedicate our entire selves to you. And we pray that in this final session that you would speak with clarity, with power, and that you would speak in such a way that each of us Um, could leave this place with a truth or a series of truths that are still lingering in our minds, in our hearts. And like when John the Apostle wrote there in 1 John, speaking about the words that he heard from the mouth of Jesus, um, he said that his words are still ringing in our ears. And I pray, Lord, that by the time we get home this afternoon to the time that we wake up for church tomorrow, by the time that we're at work on Monday, Lord, that the things that you spoke to us this weekend would still be ringing in our ears. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this session, I want us to look at a very familiar story in the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 35 here in Luke chapter 24, and I've entitled this message, Jesus Reignites Burned Out Hearts, and maybe just the title itself is a huge word of encouragement because you feel like your heart is just burned out, and especially for people that have grown up in the church. Maybe you've not only grown up in church, but you've grown up going to Christian school, or maybe you've grown up, you know, um, just being exposed to more Christians than non-Christians. And so this has been your experience. And then I found that for many of those that have had that kind of context in life, that there are moments where they find themselves with burned out hearts. But there's another category of people too. You just might be burned out just because your life's a mess, Or the baggage that you brought into this place, it's just heavy. And so there are times that you just get so overwhelmed with discouragement that you feel burned out. That it's hard to sing to God. It's hard to worship God. Even though you know you're supposed to, even though deep down in your heart you know you want to, it's just a struggle to get those words out of your mouth, let alone to be motivated to raise your hand or to really be expressive in that. Guys, I want you to know that that all of those things that I described doesn't make you any less of a Christian. This is all a part of our journey toward heaven. This is all a part of us walking with Jesus. And Jesus um, reminds us, the Bible tells us that God knows our frame that we're but dust. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord shows compassion over us. And we need to be reminded of this. But the same way that Jesus understands where we are in life, we also need to remember that Jesus doesn't want to leave us there. There's a good work that Jesus wants to do in you. There's a good work that Jesus wants to do in me. And Jesus is committed to this work because it's all stuck to a promise that he made. God said that the good work that he's begun in your life, he will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. There's not one person that's going to stand before God and say, you know what? You really blew it with my life. You said that you were going to finish what you started. Well, I'm the exception. 
Jesus will not be accused of any incomplete projects. And you can be encouraged with that. You might recognize in your own life everything that is wrong about you right now, but Jesus, when he sees you, he sees the completed work that's going to happen. And so we need a bit of encouragement. And we're going to see how Jesus wants to reignite burned out hearts. Now, this story is a Jesus encounter. These Jesus encounters that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are real moments where Jesus touches and transforms real people with his grace and truth. And so here in Luke 24, we see a Jesus encounter that two people had on the road to a village called Emmaus. And so this is one of a series of encounters that people had with Jesus after he rose from the dead. You guys remember that after Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, he rose again from the dead, but he immediately didn't go to heaven, but rather, he spent 40 days on earth, presenting himself alive to his disciples, Acts 1-3 tells us, by many infallible, unmistakable proofs. Why? The resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. As we all understand it, right? Christianity either stands or falls on this point. So Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples were left with zero doubt about the resurrection. Remember, these were the guys that Jesus was going to send out into the world with the saving message of the risen Jesus. So these guys better know for sure that Jesus is alive. And so we see historically and in the gospel narratives that his death was verified by the Roman government at the cross. When they pierced him into the side and blood and water came out, Rome verified that Jesus died. He didn't faint, he died. But also, these 40 days after Jesus rose again from the dead, the resurrection of Christ would be verified by reliable eyewitnesses. In fact, we know that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, and among them, most were not expecting to see Jesus again, especially him risen and alive, right? And so the Bible uses the number 40 often to represent a period of testing. And that's why I think it's so significant that Jesus remained for 40 days before he went back to heaven because it was during these 40 days of testing that people had time to test and verify that the resurrection appearances of Jesus were not just false rumors or hallucinations or a bad case of mistaken identity. People saw and heard and felt and interacted with Jesus. There was no doubt about it. Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus is alive. And here in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, it narrates one of those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that happened during these 40 days. And in this story, we encounter Jesus. We see his transforming power at work in real people. Listen, he reignites burned out hearts. So let's see this moment, this encounter, this Jesus encounter on the road to Emmaus. In verses 13 and 14, we read, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, and which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So these two verses set the stage for the story that follows. The gospel writer shines the spotlight on four details. Here's detail number one. We're introduced to two characters. Now, Luke's gospel simply calls them two of them. Now, we learn two things about these two people in these stories. First, they were disciples of Jesus. These words, of them, It connects these two with Jesus' disciples back in Luke 24, verses 8 through 12. Now, later in Luke 24, verse 18, it tells us the name of one of these um, two, and his name was Cleopas. The other disciple is unnamed. Now, people have offered their suggestions to who this unnamed person was, but in the end, we just don't know. But there is for me... 
something special about God not identifying who this person was. We don't know if this person was a man or a woman. We don't know if this person was young or old. We don't know if this other person was educated or uneducated. We don't know if this other person was rich or poor. But we do know this. He was a disciple who loved Jesus. So being unknown and being unnamed means that we, and this is, this is the interaction part. This is the participation part of this message. We can imagine ourselves as being this person. And that's what I want us all to do today. We want to insert ourselves into this story. Because I don't want you to just watch this scene play out as a spectator. My heart for you guys is to imagine yourself, and I could imagine myself as being in it. Let's imagine ourselves as being this unnamed disciple. Yes, this story is about their Jesus encounter, but listen, it can also be about our Jesus encounter today. God wants each of us to experience a real Jesus encounter. But the second thing that we learn about these two disciples, we see in verse 17, they were sad. We see in verse 21, they were disappointed. And we see in verses 22 through 24, they were bewildered. Number two, what does the writer teach us about these opening verses? Next, not only the characters, but the time. We see the time when the story happens. And Luke tells us that this story happened on that same day. So there's the timestamp. That same day means it's Sunday. It is the third day since Jesus was crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. It's the same day that certain women went to the tomb and found it open and empty. It's the same day that these same women claimed that angels told them that Jesus had risen and was alive. It's the same day that Simon Peter went to investigate the empty tomb. All of this happened in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. It's the same day that this story that we're in right now happens. Number three, the third thing we see in these first two verses in our story is not only the characters and the time, but now the location. We meet these two disciples having left Jerusalem now on the road to a village called Emmaus. Now, Luke tells us that Emmaus was located seven miles from Jerusalem. We see that in verse 13. Emmaus was located west of Jerusalem. Now, Passover week had ended. The Sabbath was over, and there was no reason for these two to remain in Jerusalem one minute longer. It was time to leave, guys. It was time to return home. Why stay? Guys, just think about what their week looked like. Just one week earlier, being in Jerusalem on Sunday, it was a hopeful and joyful occasion, right? Jesus rode into the city on a donkey and people were waving palm branches and welcoming him with shouts of celebration. Save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That all happened on a Sunday. Now fast forward to the next Sunday. Everything was different. The Sunday after that Sunday, Jerusalem was a sad place. For these two, it was full of disappointment, despair, and danger. For three days, Jesus' disciples were in a state of shock and deep sadness. And they were hiding from the Jewish authorities in fear of being arrested and possibly killed for being Jesus' followers. So for them, yeah, it was time to leave Jerusalem. It's time to go home. And the fourth thing that we see in these two verses is we see and hear them conversing with each other. Verse 14 says that they talked together. Verse 15 says they conversed and reasoned. That word there reasoned, a better translation is debated. These guys were in a full-on, full-blown debate. Isn't that sometimes how we process in our sadness? 
we argue. And the topic of discussion, the topic of debate was, quote, all these things which had happened. So this includes the death of Jesus, but also rumors of the open tomb of Jesus and the missing body of Jesus and the report of certain women that Jesus had risen from the dead and is alive. They were talking and debating out loud, trying to process and make sense of everything that had just happened in the past few days. And so let's remember that their conversation happened through the filter of sadness, disappointment, and bewilderment. Because when you talk through your pain, sometimes the tone can come out pretty nasty. When you talk through pain, sometimes your faith sounds more like doubt and unbelief. Sometimes when you talk through pain, it sounds more harsh than kind. Imagine yourself as one of these two engaged in this conversation, in this debate, and you are trying to make sense of your life through pain. But I bring all this up because the stage is now set. Now let's see the dramatic story unfold. Now we see the Jesus encounter. Verses 15 and 16, so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Listen, the risen Jesus now enters the story. This is where the story starts getting good, guys. Luke tells us that Jesus drew near and went with them. Now, in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 12, it tells us that he appeared in a different form to the two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. You see, Jesus rose from the dead with a physical, resurrected body. Dr. Luke verifies this in Luke 24, verses 36 and four, on through 43, when he says, listen, feel me, touch me. No ghost has flesh and bones like I have. And though he still bore the nail prints in his hands and the spear mark in his side, Jesus no longer looked bruised and beaten. He no longer looked torn and tattered as he did a few days earlier on the cross. He appeared in a different form. And it was like this that Jesus drew near to his disciples. Try to imagine how important this moment is. For these two disciples, their hearts were broken. And Jesus drew near to them. Their faith was failing, and Jesus drew near to them. Their hope was gone, and Jesus drew near to them. They left the company of the other disciples in Jerusalem, and Jesus drew near to them. Guys, these two were not looking for Jesus in their time of disappointment and despair. But Jesus came looking for them. And Jesus drew near to them. Jesus drew near to them in their darkest moment. And he is about to set their hearts on fire again. He's about to end their long, cold night of hopeless despair by causing the brilliant radiance of a renewed hope in the resurrected Christ to shine in their hearts again. This is a big moment. Jesus drew near to them. And listen, guys, here's the application. Jesus is drawn near to you, too. He's with you right now under all the dark clouds of disappointment and despair, of lovelessness and loneliness, of chaos and confusion, and of faithlessness and failures and fears. Listen, you might not know it right now, but he's with you because Jesus drew near to you. But notice at this moment, verse 16, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. The New Living Translation puts it this way, but God kept them from recognizing him. You see, Jesus wanted to open the eyes of their hearts first before opening the eyes in their heads. He wanted them to first see in Scripture, to see him in Scripture before recognizing him with human sight. You see, seeing Jesus with human sight 
was only for a limited time, right? Because 40 days after this encounter, Jesus is going back to heaven. So whatever they got to enjoy during those 40 days, being able to physically see Jesus with their eyes, that had an expiration date. But seeing Jesus in the scriptures, guys, that would bring Jesus into plain view every day for the rest of their lives. That's why seeing Jesus with our hearts is more important than seeing Jesus with our eyes. You know, sometimes God restrains us from seeing those things that we want to. Those things that we want to see most in order to teach us the things that we need to know most. Let me say that again. Sometimes God restrains us from seeing those things that we want to see most in order to teach us the things that we need to know most. Maybe there are things that are in your heart right now that you've been crying out to God, God, do this for me now. Let my eye see you working in this situation. Let my eye see you doing this thing now. And another day goes by and you don't see things happening the way that you had hoped to see them happen with your eyes. But that doesn't mean that nothing's happening in your heart. And usually during those times when you don't see things that you want to see most with your eyes, what goes on in your heart? You start disputing. You start debating. All of a sudden, the wrestling match goes on. That's where God wants to meet you. The same way he met with Jacob and he wrestled with him all night. He wants to meet you on the mat. Because we walk by faith not by sight. And so verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Here we see that Jesus not only draws near, but now he engages them. Jesus sees and he hears their sadness. Listen, Jesus is not detached and distant from our human experiences and emotions. He fully understands them. And he relates to us with empathy and compassion. Remember, Isaiah 53, verse 3, calls Jesus a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He knows what sadness looks like. He knows what sadness sounds like. He knows what sadness feels like. But Jesus here came to these guys, and he is about to transform their sadness to gladness. And he will not do this with happy, sappy cliches. And he's not going to do it with sentimental platitudes, nor is he going to do it with a motivational pet talk. Sadness has to be dealt with on a deeper level than this. Man, church is a really messy place, isn't it? But guys, it gets really messy when you're going through stuff and you try to like open up to people in church and all they fire back at you are these sappy cliches and sentimental platitudes. And it's to a point that you're thinking, you know what, I don't want to tell anybody my problems anymore. Have you been there? I have. Sadness has to be dealt this kind of sadness has to be dealt with on a deeper level than this. And so Jesus will not simply put a band-aid on their sorrow. He's going to deal with the root cause of it. Jesus will renew their faith and reignite hope in them by bringing to them a clear view of him through a clear understanding of God's word. And so we see the scene, verse 18. Then one of those name, whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus responds, what things? And this scene is classic, right? Of course Jesus knew all that had happened because it happened to him. I gotta be honest with you, when I, was, when I got to this point in my message, I can imagine Luke chuckling as he wrote this. I can imagine Theophilus letting out a short burst of laughter as he read it. 
You see, Cleopas assumed that Jesus was one of the many visitors who was in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover week, and he's stunned. He's looking at Jesus. You don't know what happened? And Jesus goes, what happened? It's almost like a scene from an episode of Undercover Boss. And so Jesus said to him, what things... Listen, again, Jesus didn't ask this question because he didn't know the answer to it, because he obviously did. He asked it to move this conversation where it needed to go in order to show them the real cause of their despairing hearts. Then he can deal with those issues that need to be dealt with. Guys, here's the application. Guys, too often... We remain in the jail cell of sadness without having thought and talked it through with Jesus. We choose to stay there merely for emotional reasons. But listen, Jesus wants to deal with the root causes of our sadness, and he wants to rescue us from it. He wants to renew our faith and to reignite hope in our hearts. So he says, let's talk about it. When was the last time you had a hard, heart-to-heart, honest conversation with Jesus about the stuff that just bothers you, about being a Christian, about the way that God does stuff? And your life is just full of sadness and hopelessness and despair But you know what a lot of Christians do? They talk to other people about it. They try to read books on it. They'll try to manage it. And they continue in the sadness because they never talk about it with Jesus. Jesus wants to engage in this conversation. So verse 19, they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and could crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And there's a whole lot of stuff going on in those words. First, we see they were disappointed. Notice they said, we were hoping, past tense. They expected the Christ to be a political liberator. Their hope was that King Jesus would liberate them from the Roman rule, but instead he was crucified and died on a Roman cross. So for them, the Jesus Chronicles ended with a surprise ending. It was over. There was no more chapters left in the story. Not only were they disappointed, but we also see that they were bewildered. They used the word astonished. You see, these two were skeptical of the resurrection reports. There were reports of people encountering angels announcing that Jesus had risen from the dead. These two, however, concluded that those reporting this probably just had visions of angels. They were hallucinating. They had heard reports that people went to Jesus' tomb and found it empty, but they didn't hear from any of them that they had seen Jesus risen and alive. So it was just rumors. You see, these two were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And this makes the conclusion of this story that much more powerful in meaning as we move on in this story. And so Jesus now responds. Verse 25, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? I want you to see how Jesus starts his response. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Let's bring it into modern day vernacular. The message paraphrase it this way. So thick headed, so slow hearted, 
Why can't you simply believe all that the prophet said? Now, notice that Jesus did not chide them for not believing the testimony of the women or the empty tomb. Instead, he chided them for not believing the testimony of Scripture. These two misinterpreted the Old Testament message about Christ. Therefore, they misunderstood the events that just happened to Jesus. Instead of rejoicing, they were sad. Instead of being hopeful, they were hopeless. They were disappointed and frustrated and sad over things God never said would happen. They were disappointed and frustrated over things God never promised he would do. When did God ever say that the Christ would liberate Israel from Roman tyranny when he comes the first time? He didn't. When did God ever promise the crown without the cross? He didn't. Application? We do the same, right? We get frustrated and upset and disappointed with God over things he never said would happen, over things he never promised he would do. Here's a personal example. So often... We get upset with God when he doesn't answer all of our why questions, W-H-Y, when he doesn't answer all of our why questions during difficult times of life. Question, when did God ever promise us that he'll answer all of our why questions? And yet, we get mad at him. We get frustrated with him. We're disappointed with him. We get frustrated and disappointed with God over things he never promised to do for us. God never promised to answer all of our why questions in life. Instead, he says, trust me. And I will work All this out for your good. In fact, when Jesus, God the Son, was on the cross, he asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember how God responded? Silence. Do you remember how Jesus responded to God's silence? Psalm 22 gives us the answer. He said, but you are holy. He reminded himself of who God is. He reminded himself of what God promised to do in the scriptures and through his sufferings. Then in that same psalm that opens up with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It ends in Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Jesus didn't get his why question answered. But his confidence was in his father and the word of God. And the result was he said, I will praise you. You see, God promised in the Old Testament that the Christ would suffer. That he would die on the cross. Then he will enter into his glory Everything happened just as God said it would. There was no real cause for disappointment and despair here. Glory would follow suffering. The crown would follow the cross. It was a time to rejoice, not be sad. It was a time to be full of hope, not hopeless. Jesus had risen. Jesus was alive. But their hearts were misguided because of a misunderstanding of the word of God. So you know what they needed? They needed something more than just a group hug. These guys needed the clear, sound, Jesus-focused exposition of God's word. And listen, Jesus brought it. So we read in verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow, what a moment. Moses and all the prophets, that refers to the Old Testament. Luke's gospel calls them scripture. Listen, the Old Testament is the word of God. 
And Jesus explained what the Old Testament says about his death, his resurrection and ascension to heavens. I could imagine that Jesus expounded the types that are in the Old Testament, the symbolism, the shadows of Christ, such as the Passover lamb, the animal sacrifices, and the brazen serpent in the wilderness. All these are about him. I can imagine that Jesus expounded the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, starting with Genesis 3.15. There is an estimated 300 plus prophecies about Jesus in Genesis on through Malachi. In fact, here are some of the Old Testament prophets that, prophecies that speak about Christ's death and resurrection that I'm sure that Jesus cited and explained. In Psalm 41, verse 9, it tells us that Christ will be betrayed by a close friend. In Zechariah 11, 12, it tells us that the betrayer will do it for 30 pieces of silver. In Psalm 22, in Isaiah 53, it tells us that Christ will be put to death by crucifixion. In Psalm 34, verse 20, it tells us that none of Christ's bones will be broken. In Zechariah 12, 10, it tells us that his side will be pierced. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it tells us that Christ will be buried in a rich man's grave. In Psalm 16, verse 10, it tells us that Christ will rise from the dead. In Psalm 68, verse 18, it tells us that Christ will ascend to heaven. Everything happened according to God's plan. Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all these prophecies, and this proves he is God's Messiah, the real Christ, the Savior of the world. And Jesus took these guys there because Christ is the centerpiece of the Bible. Jesus is in all the scriptures, and this includes the Old Testament. We read it here in Luke 24. He opened up Moses and all the prophets, but then in verses 44 and 45, it says that Jesus speaking to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. In John 5.39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. These are they which testify of me. In Hebrews 10 verse 7, commenting on the Psalms, we read, Christ said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. Listen, Christ is in the Old Testament scriptures. In Genesis, Christ is the seed of the woman and the sacrificial lamb that God will provide on Mount Moriah. In Exodus, Christ is seen in the Passover lamb, the manna from heaven and the tabernacle. In Leviticus, Christ is seen in the offerings and the high priest. In Numbers, Christ is seen in the bronze serpent. In Deuteronomy, Christ is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, Christ is the commander of God's army. In Judges, Christ is the angel, the messenger of the Lord who appeared to Manoah and his wife. In Ruth, Christ is seen in Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Christ is the root and the offspring of David and the rightful heir of the throne of David. In First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Christ is He who is greater than Solomon. In Ezra, Christ is seen in Zerubbabel, the builder of God's house. In Nehemiah, Christ is seen in Nehemiah, the restorer of God's city and people. In Esther, Christ is seen in Mordecai, the one who stands in the gap for God's exiled people in the world. In Job, Christ is our ever living Redeemer. In Psalms, Christ is our sacrifice, Savior, Shepherd, and King. In Proverbs, Christ is a source of God's wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Christ is the true meaning of life. In the Song of Solomon, Christ is our bridegroom. In Isaiah, Christ is Israel's Messiah, suffering servant, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jeremiah, Christ is the righteous branch and the Lord our righteousness. In Lamentations, Christ is seen in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Christ is the true shepherd who will feed and deliver his flock. In Daniel, Christ is the son of man and the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, Christ is seen in Hosea, the faithful husband. In Joel, Christ is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, Christ is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, Christ is mighty to save. In Jonah, Christ is seen in Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. In Micah, Christ is the everlasting ruler. In Nahum, Christ is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, Christ is God's anointed one and savior. In Zephaniah, Christ is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Haggai, Christ is the greater glory who would visit the second temple. In Zechariah, Christ is Israel's Messiah who suffered at his first coming into the world and he will rule in power and glory when he returns. And in Malachi, Christ is the son of righteousness. He is in every book of the Bible, guys. (laughs) 
And so J.C. Ryle, born 1816, went to heaven in 1900. He wrote, quote, let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central son, S-U-N, of the whole book. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. Once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. God's word is about Jesus, and it takes us to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who rescues us from the pit of hopelessness and despair. This is Jesus meeting his disciples on a deep level. So verse 28, then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent, and he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, guys, there's a whole other sermon contained in these verses, which we don't have the time for. But I want you to see those words, then their eyes were opened and they knew him. You see, God caused them to recognize the risen Jesus. Earlier, they saw Jesus in the scriptures with their hearts. Now, they see Jesus face to face with their eyes. But notice then, as soon as they recognized him, verse 31, and he vanished from their sight. Listen, this isn't the only time Jesus did this. He did this on different occasions at his post-resurrection appearances. I believe that Jesus did this to teach his disciples that seeing him by faith is more reliable and reassuring than seeing him with human sight. By vanishing, human sight could no longer see Jesus. But the eyes of faith, looking through the lens of Scripture, could still see Jesus, even though they couldn't physically see or hear or feel him. I really think that's an important lesson for us. Because when we're facing hard times and we don't feel Christ near us, what does human sight and reasoning tell us? Jesus left. Like how many of us can say, yeah, I've had those moments with Christ. It's like I know that I know that I know that Jesus was with me. Why? Because I could feel him with me. But then the moment you couldn't feel him anymore, then what does human reasoning say? He's left you. Oh, so now human emotions becomes more reliable than the promise of Jesus because Jesus is the one that said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's why the whole idea of saying, I'll believe it when I see it, is flipped on its head. Jesus says, first believe it, then you'll see it. Because faith in Jesus is more reliable than human sight. Because how many of us have second-guessed the things that we've seen, right? We doubt. Even though we saw it with our eyes, we still doubt if we really saw it. Faith is different. Faith relates to God on a completely different level. That's why the Bible in Hebrews defines faith not as, I think so, but I know so. It is the confidence, the assurance of evidence of things not seen. It's not blind. It stands on something. It stands on the evidence of the presence and the promises of God. So by faith, we need to remember that we're not alone. Because if you're thinking that right now, if you're thinking that Jesus bailed on you, then that is faulty human seeing and reasoning. 
But by faith, we see that Jesus is still with us, and he's always with us, and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Why? Because faith's sight through the lens of Scripture is 2020. And that's why this conference is so important. Because we want to have 2020 clarity, not humanly, but our faith, to be rooted, rooted and grounded again in the person of Christ. We relate to Jesus by faith, not by sight. So here's the question, do you see him today? Well, Jesus now is gone. And so verse 32, and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? You guys know this. I mean, these guys felt that spiritual heartburn, right? They felt sadness, disappointment, and bewilderment burn away. Now there is this ever-increasing blaze of renewed faith, revived hope, and resurrection life in their hearts. So guys, listen to this. God's fire starter for burning hearts are the scriptures, the Bible. God's fire starter for burning hearts are the scriptures, the Bible. A.B. Simpson, born 1843, went to heaven in 1919. He said, quote, his word is not mere intellectual light, but spiritual life and celestial fire. So as we read in Psalm 19.7, that God's word revives the soul. Here's the application for us that I want to end with tonight. Guys, if your heart is lifeless and cold then meet Jesus in the word. Open the Bible and see what God promises and believe them and apply them knowing that they are all yes and amen in Christ. We need to meet Jesus in the word. God's spirit rekindles the hearts of God's people with God's word to burn and shine for God's son. And listen, there is no substitute for the clear sound, the clear sound, Jesus-focused exposition of God's word to reignite our hearts with trust and passion for Jesus. Jesus, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And now with burning hearts, what do they do? Verses 33 through 35, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. Wow. Sounds different, right? From we had hoped, now it is full-blown confidence. And notice, and he has appeared to Simon, and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he had known, or made, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. You see, Jesus had transformed these two, and you can see it on their faces and hear it in their talk. Sadness and disappointment and bewilderness no longer characterized their conversation. Now it was all about the risen and living Jesus. Their hearts were on fire, and these two couldn't keep the news about the risen and living Jesus to themselves. They had to tell somebody about him. Guys, this has been the whole point of this conference. If there's been one consistent theme on through everything that has been said, it's nearness to Jesus. But let me encourage you guys, our nearness to Jesus, it happens when we open this book, the Bible. This is the bonus round. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I'm going to share this with you. Because I know that one of the questions I saw that, that Matt had forwarded to us that someone had asked here, but we didn't get to the question during the Q&A, was, how do I study the Bible? Let me give you a very practical way for you to maximize your daily Bible reading. And it's really consistent with the theme of 2020 vision. Here's my advice. Read with your specs on. Read with your specs on. Now, specs obviously is an acronym. S-P-E-C-S. 
when you're reading the Bible, and guys, it's not an impossible thing. Did you know that if you just read four chapters a day, you can read through in one year the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice in 365 days, just four chapters a day. If you sat down and just read through the entire Bible in normal reading voice speed, you could read through the Bible in less than 80 hours from Genesis to Revelation. And I highly encourage people, if you've never had a consistent reading through the Word of God, instead of trying to read through the entire Bible in a year, I challenge you to just start with the New Testament. Another thing I've been challenging people that have never had a a through-the-Bible reading plan or or just even a, a Bible in two years reading plan, I just say, you know what, let's devote... Let's devote 15, 15, 15 to 2020. If you read one chapter a day, you could generally read that in 15 minutes. Or excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. 15, so five, five, five. You can generally read it in five minutes. So if you just devote 15 minutes a day, devote five minutes to reading, five minutes to praying, and five minutes to pondering or meditating, thinking about and writing out the things that you've learned. Now, some people might say, well, 15 minutes, what? that's nothing. Well, I'll tell you what, 15 minutes is better than nothing. I would rather have you guys dedicate 15 minutes a day to no minutes a day. Five, five, five. So when I say read the Bible with your specs on, Here are the S-P-E-C-S. Ask the question, number one, is there a sin to avoid? When you're reading through your chapter, ask the question, is there a sin to avoid? P, is there a promise to claim? Is there a promise to claim? E, is there an example to follow? Is there an example to follow? C, is there a command to obey? Is there a command to obey? And finally, is there a scripture to memorize? Is there a scripture to memorize? I guarantee you, remember, sin, promises, example, commands, scripture. I really believe if you would just start in 2020 with just 15 minutes a day, five, 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 five minutes in the word, five minutes in prayer, and five minutes just thinking through and writing down your thoughts from what you read in that scripture and what God's been showing you in prayer and your devotional time, your life will look radically different in December 2020 than it did in December 2019. But read with your specs on. Don't just gather information, but by faith, apply it. Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to obey? And is there a scripture to memorize? So that's a freebie. But guys, thank you so much for being men of the word. Thank you for showing up and opening up your Bible and leaning in. I'll tell you, it's just such a joy to be able to lean in with guys that love God's word.